We were children of the Silicon Revolution, an X-generation conscripted to fight the console and home computer wars. A product of an analog 70s childhood, we came of digital age in the 80s, believing we could affect the world eight bits at a time. Armed with joysticks, full-stroke keyboards, jolt cola, and MTV haircuts, we proceeded into the vertical blank. There, we stayed up late at night, devising incantations from D&D rulebooks and beginner's all-purpose symbolic instruction code. Video games were the match, and programming was the fuse, as the infinite possibilities of the digital world exploded into the internet age to come. We are Generation Atari. This is 8-Bit Jeff. Welcome to Into the Vertical Blank, Season 3, Episode 8, Westworld Redux. So Jeff, this weekend is the last episode of the third season of Westworld. And I, um, I will have watched it by the time this episode comes out. Me too. And I don't want to, there's no spoilers because um, I don't want to spoil the show. I more want to talk about the you know, the first time we saw Westworld, which was back, and I think sometime in the mid-70s, I think it was re-released, because there's no way we saw it on its first run. We would have been three years old. I don't remember that. I think it was re-released right before Future World came out on TV. Yeah, Dad really wanted to see that, and he took us to see it at the Old Town Mall. It was awesome. I mean, that's what the, we're going to replay the story from last year about that exact event, but I want to talk about Westworld itself, the the whole concept. Do you do you remember seeing it for the first time? Yeah, I remember. Um, what all I remember about the original movie is Yul Brenner being a badass. Yeah, me too. That Yul Brenner's a badass. I don't remember the the stars of the movie at all. Um, I just remember Yul Brenner being a badass. I remember them taking off his face. Yes. Yeah. Like that was a big deal that they could take off the people's faces. But was was it was. Was it scary to you? Because I still remember, like, of 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 all I, you know, I I some, you know, I'm getting old, older. It doesn't happen as much anymore. But I remember mostly, probably ninety nine percent, every movie I've seen, what theater it's in, where which way I was facing, who I was with, where I was sitting, you know. Like I remember Tron. I remember sitting next to you and Mom at the Old Town Mall. Um, we were facing east. You were eating red vines, and you were sick. I had pneumonia and we didn't know. Yeah, we didn't know. He had walking pneumonia at the time. And that's when we saw Tron. Um, I remember seeing Spinal Tap and we were facing West and we were sitting with mom and two other guys in the movie theater when it came out in like, I don't know, February, January or February 1984. And they walked out at Sex Farm. You and I and mom were the only people that were in the movie theater. And that's why whenever anyone says that they saw Spinal Tap in the movie theater, I doubt it because nobody went. But it was a summer, put it this way. It was a California summer afternoon, I think. No, and not when Spinal Tap came out. Spinal, Spinal Tap came out in like March, February, March. Well, okay, so the, then I'm thinking it was, a, it was it was during, so the reason I think we went in, we went on an afternoon with Mom. So it must have been during spring break or something like that. It, it might was, have been during spring break. It yeah. was a time when other kids were out doing other things. And this, and there was no, unless you happened across that commercial for Spinal Tap and wanted to see a heavy metal band, which at the time was not a big deal. That no, was not a big deal. 
Um, although it was for us, I mean, just uh, rock and roll in general, um, that you wouldn't have gone to see the movie. And, and not understanding parody at the time, it was just so far ahead of its time. Anyway, this isn't about Spinal I think, you know, it was the first movie I saw. I know we saw 2001 A Space Odyssey but in the movie theater, but I don't remember anything about it except the, the monolith. I didn't remember that the computer turned on um, the, the guys in the spaceship. And, but, but I did remember the computer turning on the people in Westworld. And it, it had an effect because it was the, the idea at the time, and I guess it's still prevalent now, but it's more with, because AI has sort of made a comeback with these, the way that they do AI with machine learning. But AI then, they hadn't really figured that out yet. And so the whole idea was there would be a spark at one point where the AI would, would turn conscious and then turn on us. Um, and that's that Westworld. I, I remember, there's like there's a point at which they don't really explain it. It's just like all of a sudden the computers turn on the on the humans. Yeah, the the point at which you've created something that you can no longer control, right? That ha- and and can think for itself in some manner. That's that's basically the the. And so that was there was a lot of that going on at the time. You know. So my question for you then is like. As kids at the time, we in you know video games came along very soon after. I mean, we the arcade we the arcade was there. You know, the story goes it was it was the primitive arcade, but it was still the arcade. I you know there was like a, you know there were there were Atari racing games and stuff inside the arcade, and then I remember Dad playing uh, Wild Gun, and he wouldn't let us play it, but he played it himself mostly probably because that that gun belt was very um, heavy, but um, also because he he liked. To, to shoot things <clears throat> but but you know that movie was supposed to scare us about computers right so scare us about technology so say like this is something to be warned about it was my, one of michael Crichton's first stories right? right like that's prevalent in his stories is that something you know science un unchecked science turns on people but it didn't scare us at all. <laughs> no, I, I think it's just it was just like sort of a little bit of wonderment. I mean, the same thing you, if you if you think about the actual structure of Star Wars, it is sort of the same, although it's not AI. It is still unchecked power is supposed to be scary, but then you know, good triumphed over evil in that first Star Wars movie. I think I think Star. I think you made a good point, and I think we actually said this in our Star Wars episode last year. Star Wars wasn't about technology turning on humans. Star Wars is about humans turning on humans, and there just happened to be technology. Yeah. And I think that is a really important point, right? That the technology was so interesting, but it wasn't, it wasn't the thing that was the bad guy. And, and so much of sci-fi in the 70s was scared, was sort of like the scare tactics about technology and where things were going and that's kind of what the new you know we just watched devs and and um and also westworld very much about more warnings about technology right also about humans the way humans use it but that's that's not entirely i think maybe it's a mix of both now it's not just technology turning on the humans it's the humans using the technology that then turns on the humans Um, it also has they also are adding in um tech you know humans creating technology that can turn on them mixed with now quantum technologies well yeah and what that means for for both of those shows without you know spoiling too much have 
are heavily based in the ideas of machine learning and training machine learning models with all the data possible so that it can, they can start making decisions, right? I, I do this at work on a daily basis now as well, right? So I understand where they're coming from. I just personally think these machine learning models are much stupider than we give them credit for. I don't, I think it, well, while the shows are saying that they're 30 years in the future, a machine that can do what we're talking about, that I think that it would be 100 years before that would happen, at most. I mean, at least. But well, it takes, takes place now, right? Well, I don't know if it's now, but, well, it's soon. but, it's, it's, but it's, it's soon. But I mean, like, they show it being like whenever, but I, th- I don't think it would, it would happen anytime soon. But... We have seen this. Um, you remember the uh, Moore's law? Yeah. Where every eighteen months, the technology gets smaller and cheaper. We doubles seen, in power. And doubles in power. We have seen that happen with the chips. And so, your iPhone that you have now, compared to the iPhone in two thousand and nine, is hilarious. Your iPhone you have now is as powerful as the iMac I purchased in two thousand and eight. Okay. Sure, well, but the, the amount of that's technology not, that's also because they're just adding more chips right. to it, like so more cores, the, the of, all run parallel processing and stuff like right, that. Right, right. So I'm saying the amount of technology is increasing, but there's, but I think that the um, the use of the technology for these scary AI style things is not advancing as fast as that right like you can only can't teach a machine to learn in the same way that you could build a new chip well there it is i mean there's lots of interesting things they're doing with it but i i still think you know like some of it does sound scary or sounds like imposing you know like being able to recognize all the faces in the world and stuff like that and pick out people's um, you know, be, be able to recognize, you know, images and voices and, and deep fakes of all those things. That's all like right on the cusp. The thing that I'm leery about is um, the predictive analysis. But but let's ah. stop there because I don't want to. Well, I don't I'll want tell you. Okay, so let me tell you an actual real world use of predictive analysis that has nothing to do either one of these two shows that's laughable and funny, but also pointing at the same time, right? Okay, predictive analysis. They, all the TV shows want to show it as something like it's going to predict the future or whatever, right? right. Um, cloud collects <laughs> data from millions and millions of transactions that a day in location, locating all this data. If you, if you are a company that buys into the concept that they have, which is sign. And you allow your data, your aggregate data from your transactions, not individual users, but the aggregate local data for transactions to happen. They collect together this giant, huge reams and reams of data. And what they do with it is show you big data, what they do with it. And they do some really cool stuff behind the scenes. But the output of it is it shows you what pair of shoes is popular in your neighborhood basically yeah, when I you're know. going to shop right it's so it's almost it's almost like using the super powerful you know computer to you know play tic-tac-toe instead of war games right it's like, exactly exactly and so yes all the data is there and if if there was a, a evil behind it it could be used for all kinds of purposes but then what they really want to show you is who's buying what your neighborhoods you could be as cool as them well, and, and they want to sell you things. The, the other thing, you know, I know they've they, lots of collecting lots of data like that and do those types of machine learning models to like put up ads for you like Google does. But they still do a terrible job because they, they usually show me ads for things I've already purchased. It's like you guys are late, just too late.
you know, to the to the party. It also is you think that eBay seems to do an okay job, right? So eBay, I'm looking at an Atari 7800 cartridge or Atari 8-bit cartridge or whatever, and eBay later sends me an email saying, "Hey, are you still interested in that?" So obviously, that's just a that's a really simple way to to they just look at my profile and send me out a thing. But what they don't know and don't realize is I've already bought another of the same item and I'm getting an email about one I already purchased. I'm all, no, I already purchased one. Why would I want another one? They're trying really hard. But so, so back to Westworld, just, you know, before we go into the story here, you know, did, did you ever, you know, were you ever fearful from Westworld? Did it ever make you scared of anything? Um, okay, so I don't remember if the white um, liquid was in the side the um, characters in the original movie. I do think it was, and I think that scared me. I don't know why. When you shot them, they, they bled this white liquid, and that I think that scared me. Now, I know the new one, they use that, and I know that it came from somewhere, and I do think that the pulling off of Yul Brenner's face in the original movie and or that white liquid, I think there was something about that that was like, What's going on here to me as a little kid? That's yeah, because I still, I mean, I distinctly remember lots of that movie, and I've, I haven't really watched it again afterwards. So uh, maybe, maybe here, I've never watched it from the beginning, but it stuck with me. I mean, we're like six years old, and we saw Star Wars the next year, and I think it kind of made me forget all of it, um, and didn't make me scared of computers at all. So maybe that's the point. It tried. It did. They tried to. They tried to do their job, but it didn't work. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't scare. So if they were trying to scare me out of technology, it didn't. In fact, didn't Star Wars made the only technology that was in there was fought against by an ancient religion, right? right? Like, so um, it was kind of interesting uh, in yeah. some ways. The juxtaposition to me is interesting for those two because because it's it was. It was a time when I don't know if Westworld was very popular back then. I know that a lot of people knew about it, but I don't think it was like a hugely popular movie. It might it might have done okay. I think it was a best-selling book. So, yeah. Um, so that was part of it. Um, I did um, just on the current Westworld, just not not giveaways. Or I thought for the season one was amazing. Um, oh, season one is fantastic. Season two was. Just okay. Season three, it feels like they're speeding it up to get to a conclusion. It's almost like the third Hunger Games book, where it's like, okay, now we know where we're going, and we've, we're going to get there. Right, right. And I think that, like, I didn't, I mean, I like the, just on that note, it's another dystopian thing where technology's taken over. I really, really enjoyed the first Hunger Games book. Yeah, the first time. I really, really enjoyed the second Hunger Games book. Yeah, the third one's awful. Um, I hated the third one. So that's Westworld. I mean, without spoiling anything, um, you know, it's going to be exciting to watch tonight. It, it, the, the finale will be out already. Um, but here is our story about the original Westworld. And then when we went to it the first time, and also the first time, I think, pretty much the first time we ever went into an arcade. So this is Sharp Shooter. <laughs> Sharpshooter, part one, infrared. A gun is never empty, my dad told me. He was looking straight at me. He was looking into my eyes. He had never done that before. 
that I could recall, anyway. A gun is always loaded, he repeated, changing the words slightly, but not the meaning. It was the mid-1970s. We were at the Old Town Mall, a turn-of-the-century-themed indoor shopping and entertainment destination, waiting in line to take a turn at the shooting gallery. We had about a half an hour to kill before our movie started at the Man 4 Cinemas. We went to the mall that day to see the movie Westworld, a sci-fi film about robots gone astray at a futuristic amusement park. A gun is always loaded, he repeated. I thought for a moment. And then I said, but, but, but in Adam-12, the guns stop firing after they've shot all the bullets. No, he said firmly. He rarely shouted. Instead, he emphasized particular words by gritting his teeth as he said them. You don't understand. A gun is never empty. A gun is always loaded. Do you understand me? I nodded my head. I turned and looked at my brother. He nodded his head, too. We pretended to understand. This is obviously a very important idea my dad was trying to impart on us. When we got to the front of the line, my dad took two quarters out of his pocket and placed them on the counter next to the shooting gallery rifle. He put one in the coin slot and his gun sprang to life. He picked up the rifle, pointed it towards the targets, laid the stock on his shoulders, leaned his head over, closed one eye, and squinted the other so he could see clearly through the crosshairs. He aimed for the infrared target attached to a beer can at the side of the gallery. He squeezed the trigger. From somewhere under the counter, a speaker reported the sound of a rifle shot. The can reacted immediately, jumping up three feet in the air on a wire track. My dad's success did not change the serious expression on his face. If this was a real gun, he said, my arm would have been thrown back by the force of the shot. It's called recoil. My brother and I looked directly at him, as if he was imparting the most important information in the world. In a movie, you can tell if an actor has ever fired a real gun or not by how he moves when he takes a shot. If there is no recoil, he's a phony. My dad did not like things that were phony. He pointed them out to us at regular intervals. He was an actor, or at least he was an actor. He studied method acting, someone named Paul Mann in New York, and he felt he was an expert on actors acting genuine in movies. He appeared in several episodes of TV shows in the 50s, but when the jobs dried up, he went to work as a draftsman for an aerospace company near Los Angeles. The California dream deferred. My dad took the rest of his shots. He hit almost all, if not all, his targets. When he was finished, he put another quarter in the coin slot and handed the gun to me. It was my turn. My father felt it was his duty to teach me to shoot guns. Even though we lived in the heart of suburbia, he was certain that the skill of handling and firing a gun was one of the most important skills he could teach his young sons. However, I had some kind of mental block about them. By age six, we had gone into our garage at least a dozen times to practice shooting at targets attached to old phone books. In the back of our property, with the garage door closed, firing a small caliber pistol sounded too similar to the pop of firecrackers for any one of the neighbors to pay attention to the sound. Kids lit off firecrackers all the time in our neighborhood. It was no big deal. Still, the practice with the real gun made me very nervous. I only ever wanted it to end as soon as possible. 
This affected my ability to shoot straight. I'm sure for my father, even those dozen times were not enough gun practice for him. So the shooting gallery at the Old Town Mall was a reasonable, yet panty-waste alternative. Another one of his favorite terms. The shooting gallery rifle felt much lighter than I expected, but it was long and unwieldy. It was connected to the counter via a short black cord. I tried to put the stock on my shoulder, just like my dad, but being six years old meant my arms were too short. I had to choke up on the rifle, holding the barrel with one hand and the trigger with the other. I leaned my head over, squinted, and tried to see through the crosshairs. I could not see a thing. My dad and brother were waiting, so I pulled the trigger, hoping my random shot would hit one of the many targets scattered around the gallery. A sound boomed from out of the counter that the cord was attached to, but none of the targets in the general direction in which I fired made any kind of movement. Come on, Steve! He said in his angered but annoyed but disappointed voice. The same voice I can still hear in my head right now as I write this. The same voice I heard my entire life as I did something that did not make him happy. I fired six more shots, all with the same result. Then I handed the gun to my brother so he could finish the game. Even though we were twins and nearly the same size, his stature was much better than mine. He held the rifle as if he had been holding rifles his entire life. My brother emptied the gun, hitting at least three of the targets he aimed at. You could be a marksman, my dad told him as my brother put the gun down and smiled. We started to walk towards the movie theater. What's a marksman, my brother asked. It's the first rank you attain when you learn to shoot in the army. The next rank up a sharpshooter, the next expert sharpshooter, my dad replied. Did you get a rank when you were in World War II, I asked. I was a sharpshooter. We left the shooting gallery and walked towards the movie theater. It was almost showtime. Part 2, Westworld Released in 1973, Westworld was a movie about humanity struggling with the technology it created but couldn't fully comprehend or control. It starred James Brolin and Richard Benjamin as vacationers at a futuristic amusement park named Delos. The park was filled with androids that acted like the characters from a chosen time period. In the movie, the pair chose the Old West, but other time periods like Ancient Rome and Middle Ages were also available. As soon as the pair arrived at the park and made their decision, they were thrust into what amounted to an alternate universe, a real-life virtual reality of sorts. The visitors were immersed in the world of gambling, fighting, and even sexual encounters. It was all good, clean fun until something went horribly wrong. When the movie started, I sat and watched it, hoping for an epic adventure. I wanted to see something big and something amazing. Every year, the movie Wizard of Oz was shown on TV, and even though it was a musical made the 30s, there's something amazing about it. It was a grand adventure. The characters traveled places and overcame obstacles. There were sweeping vistas and magical places. When I went to the movies, I wanted every film to be like The Wizard of Oz and to make me feel like I felt when I watched it. With a name like Westworld, I hoped for the best. But what I saw was not unlike the other sci-fi movies and TV shows I had seen in my six years on the planet. Big ideas shoved into cramped spaces. The universe of Westworld was interesting, but the story told the universe seemed small to me. It all boiled down to two good guys running from one bad guy. In the vast world of Delos, this seemed like a small, claustrophobic story. Still, the action was good, and the underlying idea of a amusement park filled with robots was really cool. 
And the coolest thing about Westworld was the android played by Yul Brenner. Along with the other androids, he became sentient and tried to kill the humans in the park. Brenner had an icy stare and a palpable sense of committed digital dread about him. He was like a combination of the Terminator and Darth Vader, but those characters would not be invented for years to come. Walking out of the movie theater with my dad always made for a difficult few minutes. While I liked Westworld for what it was, I really wanted to know how he felt about it. It was very important to me to have his validation on my feelings for movies. I could tell by looking at his face, he was not totally impressed by it. What did you think, Daddy? He was silent for a few seconds. We were walking back through the mall towards the shooting gallery. We passed the comic book store and I stared at the covers of the publications in the window. It was pretty good, he said suddenly. The guns didn't recoil exactly right, and the old west town buildings looked phony, but it was pretty good. I was relieved. It was okay for me to like the movie. We walked past the silk screen t-shirt shop, the carousel, the flying bee ride. I took a good long look as we passed the cookie shop, a place I always wanted to visit, but my dad, a self-prescribed health food nut, would never take us to. We passed the dark ride, the stamp collecting store, the nine-hole miniature golf course, and came up towards the juice shop. My dad stopped there and got in line. Juice was good for us, and my dad approved of his consumption. When we got to the front of the line, I, as always, ordered the strawberry juice. My brother ordered the same. My dad got carrot and cucumber. We found a small table and sat down to finish our drinks. Daddy, I asked, can we go through the arcade on the way out? The arcade was at the far end of the mall near the food court, the opposite side from the movie theater. We hardly ever made it down to that end of the mall, usually stopping at the shooting gallery or at Paul Freiler's historical model shop before we got there. In my six years, I'd only ever walked by arcades. I'd seen the pinball machines lined up against the walls and the newer-looking video games standing up in the middle with teenagers behind them using the controls. I'd heard all the amazing sounds emanating from within, but I'd never actually seen any of the games working. However, the movie Westworld had inspired me. Even though it featured what I imagined to be living video game characters striking back against their human players, I was suddenly fascinated by the idea of electronic games and how they were played. I'd only seen them from afar, and I'd never played one. My dad did not answer my question, but as we emptied our cups and got up to leave, he started towards the arcade. When we reached the large open storefront crammed with video game cabinets and teenagers, my dad turned on his heels and entered the establishment. Part 3. Wild Gunman. The minute we entered, it was like visiting an alternate universe. The air was filled with a cacophony of bells and slaps from pinball and other electromechanical machines and grumbling digital tones from the video games. Like the androids in Westworld, who came to life once the visitors paid $1,000 a day for the privilege of visiting their world, these electronic games begged for the change in our pockets so they could come to life and let us enjoy the amusements they held inside. The lights were dimmed, but it was not dark inside. Every corner of the room was lit by flashing beacons.
We inched through the room, looking at the array of games on display. An eight-player auto-racing game sat in the middle of the room next to a section of Pong and Pong-style games. There were many machines with steering wheels and rifles attached. On the south wall, next to a bank of skee-ball machines, was one of the most interesting things I had ever seen. It was an enormous machine that was at least eight feet high and eight feet wide and ten feet long. It had a counter in the front with a six-shooter and a holster attached and an eight-foot-wide screen in the back. It was named Wild Gunman, and it was amazing. Nintendo released Wild Gunman in 1974. It was not exactly a video game, but instead it used a projector to display film clips of actual cowboys itching for a fight. The machine included a bank of five stars on the front. They would light up as a reward if you were successful when battling the armed bandits. The player would put on the gun belt and keep the six-shooter holstered until it was time to fight. When the game started, it would choose one of four film sequences, A, B, C, or D, with five scenes each. The player would watch a film scene start and then wait for the on-screen bandit's eyes to flash. At that point, it was the player's job to quick draw and fire before the bandit could fire back. The game would either show a scene of the cowboy firing back at you, saying you lost, or the cowboy falling to his death and saying you won. After the five scenes played out, you would know your score by how many stars were lit up on the front of the console. Wow, look at that, my dad said. He pulled some change from his pocket and headed towards the wild gunman machine. My brother and I followed. My dad put on the gun belt, inserted his quarters, holstered the gun, and waited for the action to start. The words came up on the screen. After the eyes flash on screen, shoot. Put your pistol in the holster and prepare to draw. In the first scene, a cowboy was skulking in the doorway of some old west buildings. He moved through two of them, then his eyes flashed. My dad did not draw quick enough, firing just a bit late. The cowboy shot first. The words, you lost, appeared on the screen. My dad looked flustered. The words, replace the pistol in your holster and prepare to draw, flashed on the screen. He holstered the gun and got ready for the next bandit. A cowboy walked onto the screen carrying a saddle. He put it down, and suddenly he noticed my father. His eyes flashed, and he drew his gun. Before he had a chance to shoot, my dad raised his six-shooter and fired. The cowboy slumped over. A star lit up on the console. At once, it clicked in with me what I was seeing. My dad was successful, and the machine responded. It was like the shooting gallery, where the cans flew over wires when they were hit, but so much better. Actions were not solitary and unrelated. They connected to one another so a story could be told. The machine reacted to my dad's actions like a robot might respond. It could see what he was doing, and the realistic characters responded in kind. My dad shot the third bandit and missed the fourth. This set up the final showdown. With two wins and two losses, the confrontation would settle the score. Replace the pistol in your holster and prepare to draw, flashed on the screen. The screen then changed. A door opened and the final bandit strode confidently toward my father. 
His arm was arched at his side, his fingers itching to pull the gun from the holster and take down the final bad guy. The on-screen bandit's eyes flashed, and he pulled his gun and fired. He was too quick. There was not enough time to react. My dad drew his pistol and fired, but he was not fast enough. He tried to fire again, but nothing happened. The trigger clicked, but the game did not respond. Click. 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 He motioned the gun towards the screen, as if he could push a bullet out and win the duel by sheer force. But his gun was empty. Projection on the screen showed the result. You lost. My dad put the gun back in the holster, took off the gun belt, and walked away from the machine. My brother and I followed him. As we walked out the door of the darkened arcade into the sunlight, one word came out of his mouth. Phony. But I was not so sure. As we drove home, a feeling washed over me. It felt like I was living in a new age. An age that not only imagined robotic, electronic amusement parks in the movies, but one that was just on the cusp of creating them for real. An age where interactive amusements were just creeping out of their digital hiding places to find a place in the sun their eyes blinking, ready for a fight. And for a moment, it felt like I was looking at a window straight into Delos. My mind was racing back and forth, connecting the electronic worlds I had just visited in Westworld to the one behind the movie screen in Wild Gummin. It was a moment of discovery that I've never forgotten, a fleeting yet real moment of transcendence, where just for a few seconds, I felt like I understood my place in the world, my place in time, and where the future might take me. And then... As suddenly as the feeling appeared, it evaporated. And there I was, sitting next to my dad in the cab of the big white pickup truck, my brother seated behind us as we traveled to our small suburban home back in the real world. Think about that, Jeff. And any final notes of that story? Yeah, I have vivid memories of the Old Town Mall. It was such a special, special place. I have vivid memories of that, of sort of those movie theaters. They were big theaters too at the time. I think this is before there were like a place that had four, right? Yeah, there are four big theaters all in one place. I mean, you didn't get that. You got like one cinema or two, um, and the that. Walking out of the mall and then down the the mall to the arcade was incredible because of the smells of that place, the the caramel corn, the the guys making, uh, they were they had people making candles, but also like making blown glass and the juice store, and it just was like this. As a six year old, it was like it was like a little amusement park. Yeah, but but the thing about it is, it was so normal to have. Right, I know. didn't notice that. And this would be I kind of was almost like living in small town America in um 
I guess maybe like in the in the 30s or so. I have no idea what it would have been like, but like 1890s, 1890s something, right? And it was like, but to us, it was so normal to have this place, and we just took it for granted, I guess, a little bit because it did go away. Um, but it was just a great. I mean, I I have a visceral, I have visceral reactions to smells that I smell that are like that. Like if I, I get find the right hot caramel corn from someplace. I smell and see the Old Town Mall in my oh, yeah, I know. I know. It's, it was a pretty amazing spot. Yeah. And even that, that arcade, which I think in the entrance um, had some Atari games, and then they still had electromechanical games, but those were being slowly pulled out. Lots of pinball machines, and they had things like Wild Gunman, like that thing that Dad would play. I mean, it was huge. It was awesome. Man. It was amazing. Um, yeah, those are, I mean, you know, not to be too nostalgic, but I guess that's what this podcast is. <laughs> well, at least this episode is at least. Um, but yeah, so that was a great place. I mean, I mean, you I'm, go to you go to these dead malls now with the with the VR places and stuff like that, and you know, it, it's a little bit reminiscent because you're like, oh, it's all like little kids' playgrounds and and VR shops and and you know, retro video game stores like the one down the street. But it's a dying mall. This wasn't a dying mall. This was this was a mall that was designed this way from the beginning to be a place, be like a nerd shop it was and, like a little chunk of like a co-op awesomeness that was five yeah, footballs lo- five football fields long not, not quite five probably, probably I mean, it was huge i mean it was big though it was imagine like if you if there was a strip mall now that had a comic book store and a arcade and a model store that sold dungeon dragons you know like uh, like books and a stamp collecting store i don't know collect it on one place it would be like the hottest spot a t-shirt shop game magazines a magazine store that sold magazines from around the world and then there was a dark ride i mean like (laughs) two dark rides just ridiculous yeah yeah i mean actually i think uh, geez if i won the lottery that was that's the strip mall that i make um i do agree with you there'd be an atari store there too definitely an atari store that sold mint Vintage Atari plus mint um, homebrews and probrews too, all of it, right? All in place. Right. And the thing is, since you won the lottery, it wouldn't have to make a profit. Like you could just have the stuff there, sell it, have people come in and play games, sell some stuff. But really, the idea would it would be a place for Atari fans to show up and you know just just kind of bask in what once was and what is now because with all the great people making homebrews and making new stuff it's really exciting that's what i like about what we're doing now is yes we do talk about nostalgia a lot but but we're, we're moving into an era of what are people doing now right the xm module from the last episode um dan kitchen's games uh things that we want to do ourselves not ourselves are the stuff we're doing is not at the same level but but the fact that we want to be involved and make new things not just eventually we can get there Uh, a lot of practice a lot of practice to make like really good games so i think good start is the game you're making uh, into the void which is going to be a fun side scroller which there are no good fun side scrolling shooters are there none or just are they rare uh, there's, I'm saying there's no good ones on the on the 7800. There's one. Has there one. anyone made? Has there been any good homebrews that anyone's made? Only a run. Uh, the Bentley Bear one is really oh, that's cool. cool. It's a that's little cool. bit. It's a little like Super Mario Brothers, but it's not. And but I think that something where you're flying and shooting, trying to make you know a little bit of that R type 
a little bit of that R-Type performance. <laughs> it's sort of in between Scramble and R-Type, or in between Vanguard and R-Type, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, some you get to pick up some extra weapons and pick up some some power-ups, and you have a shield, and, and you get m multiple shots and stuff like that. When I play those games, when and I go back and I play, like, a, a Captain Beeble or something on the Atari Hunter, which is a really fun side-scrolling adventure game where you're... If, I really want to be able to pick up, like, two shots. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I want to, the finish style games, I want to be able to pick up an extra weapon, at least two shots. And I think the two games that did that really well back then, Gyrus and Galaga. And the reason that Galaga holds such, like, uh, in my mind, is better than the other version of the same game is because of that upgradable ability to have two shots, right? That, that's pretty much it. So that's why I want to make a game that, or you're making the game right now. But um, eventually, I want to port whatever you have over to the Atari ST. Uh, and oh, that would be fun, yeah. And the Lynx, I think, would be fun as well. There's that new Lynx contest that yeah. was announced on Atari Age, kind of like last year's. The guys at MarkSpace are sponsoring it again, um, and they're actually they actually put those games on their downloadable platform or their their streaming platform. So it's really cool. Okay, Steve. Well, that was a, a nice, tight, good episode for episode eight of season three of Into the Vertical Blank: Westworld Redux. And yeah, hey Jeff, hey Jeff, I got something to say to you. Why don't you say it to me first? What? Into the vertical blank? Yeah, yeah, into the vertical blank. Into the vertical blank. Calculated, prepare to write new data, V blank ending. An 8-Bit Rocket Studios production.